I want to encourage, I want to ask you to open your Bibles to Nahum chapter 3. Nahum chapter 3, we will look at the final portion of this enigmatic book. Nahum 3, 8 through 19. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart, a sea, water, her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put in the Libyans were her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are like women in your midst. The, gate of your land, the gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like a grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of heavens. The locust spread its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes are like clouds of locusts settling on the fences on, in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Although we pray that as we examine this unusual text that you would do a work in us that perhaps only this text could do. And that it would be for the glory of your Son and the joy and strength of us, your people. Strengthen us to listen. Strengthen our hearts to receive. Strengthen this preacher to bring this great word to these fine brothers in Jesus' name. Nobody likes a trash talker. The disrespect, the taunting, who needs it, right? It's unsportsmanlike, it's mean, it gets in your head. There's no place for that stuff, is there? Not in sports. At least, that's what I always used to tell myself when I had to play one of those guys. I hate trash talk. Except when it's happening to someone else. Then I love trash talk. Maybe I'm the only one in the room like this, but I love hearing about how Larry Bird used to chirp at guys, you can't guard me. I don't even know why they put you on me. You don't belong in the NBA. I'm going to score on you. 
Or how Gary Payton hollered out one time, hey, Scotty Pippen, you ain't in my top 10. You ain't in my top 50. Let me show you my list. You're number 51. Or when Charles Barkley was asked what he thought about something Charles Oakley said, and Barkley said, Oakley ain't important enough for me to think about. Or hundreds of lines from Jordan, or Kobe, or Iverson, or Embiid. I love that stuff. It gets me fired up. It gets me weirdly giddy on the edge of my seat to see what's going to happen next. Something deep inside me resonates with a well-phrased, perfectly timed taunt, and I used to feel guilty about it. I used to wonder if I had a sin problem. Maybe I need to sit down with my accountability guys and just be like, look, fellas, I like it when someone puts someone else down and it's a real zinger. What's the matter with me? I felt like I had this issue because pastors need to have higher standards for their personal entertainment until until I started paying attention to this subversive little book tucked away in the Old Testament called Nahum. We've been in this book for a while, so you've seen the taunts, right? Look at chapter 3, verse 5. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will lift up your skirts over your face. I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I'll throw filth at you, treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle, and all who look at you will shrink away and say, wasted is Nineveh, who's going to grieve for her? Where can I even find comforters for you? You are such trash. What I want to ask is not if you're aware of these taunts in the book. What I want to ask is, do you appreciate them? Do you feel them? Do you enjoy them? Maybe most importantly, can you worship a God who taunts people? Who taunts his enemies? Who mocks them? If not... I would gently suggest you might not have yet felt the force of this glorious book of Nahum. And I wonder if the reason is maybe you've not yet felt the truly horrible force of truly horrible evil. I wonder if that's why taunts resonate with us. Because deep down inside, we know there's an appropriate place for that. It's certainly not in the NBA, right? I mean, that's just fun, competitive drama. But in the face of truly horrifying evil, the only reasonable response for a good person, God and us included, the only reasonable response is anger and vengeance. And when that truly powerful evil goes down in a great face plant, The only natural thing good people do is applaud and mock and taunt and rejoice. Ding dong, the witch is dead, said the munchkins. And if it's good for kids, it's probably good for preachers. No place in scripture makes this point better, perhaps, than Nahum chapter 3, verses 8 to 19. Nahum wants you not just to know something, but feel something. That's why it's poetry, brothers. He wants you to feel the power and the pathos of these poetic images, and here's his point. If I could summarize this text in one sentence, 
it would be clap your hands and party on. Your biggest foe is good as gone. I like the sound of that, so I'm going to say it again. <laughs> clap your hands and party on. Your biggest foe is good as gone. That's what this text is about. And the author makes two moves. Verses 8 through 10, he tells us to think about Thebes. Verses 11 to 19, he tells us to savor the satire. Think about Thebes. It's a point for your head. Savor the satire. It's a point for your heart. Look again at verse 8. He's bringing an object lesson to his enemy. Are you better than Thebes? Sat by the Nile, water around her, her rampart of sea, water a wall, Cush, Egypt, put the Libyans, they were her helpers. She became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast. All her great men were bound in chains. These readers would have known instantly what... Nahum was talking about. Thebes was the capital city of ancient Egypt. It had legendary greatness in Nahum's time, and yet Thebes fell. Think about that. Thebes was situated in Egypt, about 400 miles south of the Mediterranean Sea, down the Nile River a good way. At that point where they built this city, the Nile was about a half a mile wide. They put the city partly on the shores, partly in the middle. There was water all around this amazing city, forming a natural line of defense. And yet, Thebes fell. Think about that. Thebes was surrounded by supportive people and powerful Allied nations, Cush, Egypt, Put, Libya, they all stood ready to help in time of need. Yet when the fog of war lifted, Thebes had fallen. Think about that. Verse 10 describes the gruesome death of infants. It's barbaric. And that's the point. This is the way conquerors often acted in the ancient world, and there was one particular conqueror that did this with particularly vile force. It was Nineveh. Thebes fell to Assyria. Thebes fell to Nineveh, 663. Look back at that question in verse 8. Are you better than Thebes? If you're Nineveh, what are you saying? Actually, yeah. I mean, did you not hear the story? Didn't you see the headlines? Yeah, I'm better than Thebes. And the point is actually not that Nineveh should be compared to Thebes. The point is that Nineveh should be compared to God because who was responsible for the crashing down of the walls of Thebes? God. The question here that God's posing to Nineveh is, I brought them down. Do you think you can stand a little better than they did against me? I am against you, he said in chapter 3, verse 5. Nahum wants to bring to his readers a point for the head. Think about this. But he also has a point for our heart. Feel this. 
Savor the satire in verses 11 through 19. There are five images packed in together in verses 11 through 13. Nineveh is a staggering sot, a frightened fugitive, a trembling tree, a weak woman, and a susceptible city. Look at it. It's all right there. Five different images in rapid order. You will be drunken, a staggering sot. You will go into hiding, seek refuge from the enemy, a frightened fugitive. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Nineveh is a trembling tree. How about verse 13? I love this one. This is God's version of saying, you throw like a girl. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. And the last image, the gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. You are nothing but a susceptible city, poised to collapse. That doesn't sound so good. So the Lord, being ever the helpful one, starts making suggestions. Look, you know you're going down. It's me versus you. Nobody's ever won this battle. I've got some ideas. Get ready. How about this? Verse 14. Go ahead. Draw water for the siege. That'll help you. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. Total satire, right? He's just saying, hey, do your best, and I'll even help you. I'll give you the battle plan. Stock up on water. Fill some of those holes in the walls with new clay bricks. Reinforce the keep. But look at verse 15. Nothing's actually going to help you. You do all that, and the fire will still devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. In other words, the Lord goes, look, man, I gave you the battle plan, but nothing can defeat me. Not even my best plan for you. You're in trouble. The sword and fire will devour you like the locust. Speaking of locust, and now he takes it in that direction. Look at this, verse 15b. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. That's something locusts do. They don't just devour. They show up everywhere. There's dozens of them, hundreds of them, millions of them. How about that? Strength in numbers. Take a crack at that. Still furnishing Nineveh with the battle plan. Get a bunch of people. Get a bunch of merchants. You'll be fine. Well, that's what they did. Verse 16. You increased your merchants more than the stars of heaven. Well, that sounds promising. You can't even count the number of merchants? This is a pretty economically powerful city. I wonder how that helped them. Verse 16. 16b. Locust spreads wings and flies away. Your princes are actually like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on fences in the day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away, and no one knows where they are. So much for that strength in numbers thing. Right? You can picture a bunch of grasshoppers perched on a split rail fence, cold morning. There's a farmer in the area. He's got a pump sprayer filled with pesticide. And one of those little locusts on the end of the rail goes, we're safe, right? I mean, there's so many of us here, right? We're safe, right? I mean, we'll be okay, right? I mean, it's all of us. You guys are with me. We're, I'm with you. We're, we're safe, right? And all of a sudden, he hears... <laughs> And there's just one farmer standing there with this sprayer right in his little face. Where, where did all those other locusts go? Where's the strength in numbers? I mean, that's the point. 
dude in a hazmat suit ready to pump the air full of bug spray. Numbers aren't going to help you. None of those people can help you. And in verse 18, the taunting really picks up. Your shepherds are asleep, king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. You people, your people are scattered on the mountain with none to gather them. Don't miss the change of address. He calls out the king of Assyria. That unmasks the whole battle here, doesn't it? This isn't Nineveh versus Israel. This isn't even Nineveh versus God. It's actually a showdown between the king of Assyria and the king of Israel, Yahweh versus that guy. The figurehead of evil versus the God of all goodness. I wonder how that's going to go. Chapter 19, verse 19. There's no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. There's not even a battle. This is the big showdown. Yahweh has taunted him into coming out of his lair, and there's not even a battle. The, the, the king of Assyria is just lying there on the ground, wounded. My guess would be he's been bashed in the head, and the champion is walking away with a little bruise on his heel. I think that's what's happening, don't you? This one-on-one figurehead of all evil and Yahweh, the God of his covenant people. There's no more taunting. There's no more sarcasm. There's just a seething satisfaction of, at the holy vengeance that has been brought on this evil enemy. And so the book closes with this invitation. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Or, as the way you might put it, if you were preaching this, clap your hands and party on. Your biggest foe is good as gone. Friends, here we sit, wishing maybe that we could be like Israel and have God throw down on our big enemy like that, and we don't really, who who is Nineveh? How does this help us? Where does it connect with me? And I want to point out a couple of things here. Isaiah 25 makes very clear that even in this day, the worst party crasher was not Nineveh. The foe that kept God's people from clapping and cheering more often than Nineveh was something else that the prophet describes in Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, rich food full of marrow, aged wine, well-refined. Question, what has launched them into this party? Why are they clapping their hands and partying on? Well, verse 7, Isaiah 25, 7. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow. What is this covering? What is this Paul? Verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. 
and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Did you see the name? That huge specter that stands behind the king of Assyria? Death. And brothers, you could have taken this any direction you want as you're thinking about the enemies that Jesus defeated on our behalf. If you were to come up to me and say, Josh, clap my hands and party on. My greatest foe is good as gone. I want to talk to you about indwelling sin. I hate being a sinner. I hate it. I would have sat down and we would have talked about what's going on in your life and we would have tried to put in place some practical steps and some hope of the gospel and then I would have taken you to Romans 8, 29 and 30 that those he predestined he called and those he called he justified and those he justified he glorified. And then I would have said to you, Clap your hands. Party on. Your greatest foe is good as gone. Or if you would have come up to me and said, dang, Josh, I don't know what's going on in my life. I just feel so oppressed by supernatural evil. I would have sat you down and we would have prayed together because I don't have anything to say about that other than we've got to have God's power. And then I would have taken you to Colossians 2.15 and said, Jesus disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. So, brother... Just rejoice. I might even have tried to write a poem for you. Clap your hands and party on. Your greatest foe is good as gone. But behind all of that, behind all of that, is this ongoing battle, this fear, this inevitable date with death that presses on every one of us. And I think that's on my heart because of conversations I've had in this room this week a brother who didn't make it to our workshop because in retirement age, he went to spend time with his daughter, who is the age of some of us in this room, who just recently was diagnosed with breast cancer. And behind that is the specter of death. A guy in our small group shares us his story. He's married to his Second wife, because he lost his first wife when she was young, and she lost her husband when he was young. And praise God for an opportunity to be remarried, but what a heartbreak. Talking to a brother in the pre-workshop who's had people dying left and right around him in the last month or two. Some at their own hand, some suddenly. Things that are happening that are unfathomably evil. Evil. Death is evil. It's not meant to be this way. And so wouldn't it be great, wouldn't it be great if some human could stare death in the eyes and go, I ain't afraid of you. I know your track record. I know that every single human who has ever met you one-on-one has lost. But today you go down And the picture, in my mind, is Jesus, our champion, standing before the tomb of Lazarus. And he sees all these people weeping. And he's heard the question from Mary, weeping. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And from Martha, same question, not weeping, puzzled. 
If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Where were you? And Jesus moved with rage. Weeps. Sees how wrong this is. Strides up to the cave. You can see the fierce resolve in his eye. Martha's there. Mary's there. I mean, Lazarus is sort of there. But the only two figures in the scene that matter are Jesus and death up on top of that rock looking down at him. Grim. Gloating. Utterly impervious to all the tears and the sorrow. Not in this scene, but that have echoed through all the scenes of human history. And he's gloating. No one has ever taken me down. Who do you think you are? And Jesus prays and says three words. Lazarus, come out. And death is blown back and yields up his prey. And everyone claps their hands and parties on, right? That's what you do when the big foe takes a face plant. You taunt, you cheer, you rejoice. That's what you do. And we see the apostolic writer doing this exact thing, reflecting on this exact point. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Quoting Isaiah 25. And then, not quoting Nahum, but taking a page out of Nahum's playbook, says, O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? I'm mocking you. I'm shaming you. I'm clapping my hands over you because my conqueror has defeated you. So brothers, love Nineveh. I mean, I did not mean to say that. Love, love Nineveh, I suppose. That's Jonah. Love Nahum. Love this book. Don't be freaked out by this book. Preach this book. And live in the good of this book. Which ends with that verse that means, say it with me, clap your hands and party on. Your greatest foe is good as gone. Father, we pray that you would help us feel what in this text we see. Help us believe what seems beyond reach of belief. And help us someday, oh so soon, live that reality forever. Lord Jesus, please. We want to be freed. So please, come quickly. In your good name we pray. Amen.